Hello, colleagues. Welcome to the Social Work 864 podcast, Policy Analysis Actualized. This podcast is all about policy analysis and practice. We will be talking with various leaders in the policy arena about strategies for effective social policy design, advocacy, implementation, and evaluation. With us today is Ms. Stephanie Lee. Ms. Lee, thank you for being with us today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Let me give you a little context for our discussion. This class is Advanced Policy for Social Work Practice and is one of the foundational courses in our Doctor of Social Work program. Our goal for this class is for DSW students to explore the cyclical relationship between social problems, practice, and public policies through a deeper examination of the various approaches to policy analysis and the interdisciplinary efforts of the process at all levels, federal, state, and local. At this point, we are in the fifth week of our course, and students have been reading about different approaches to policy analysis, such as a rational approach, feminist approach, and intersectionality-based framework, to name a few. Students have also read and discussed matching policy to problems, evaluating policy proposals, and cost-benefit analysis and risk. Students have had the opportunity to hear from Dr. Brad Forenza about policy and social work practice, Kentucky State Representative Attica Scott about policy at a state level, and Dr. Isabel Lee about policy and intersectionality. Today, we are wanting to have a deeper conversation about policy and cost-benefit analysis. So again, I thank you for joining me today to share your knowledge and expertise. Let's just start with introductions. Would you please share with our students who you are, a bit about your career path, and your perspective on the importance of policy? Absolutely. Um, thank you so much for inviting me to this conversation, Laura. Um, I really appreciate the chance to talk with students and hopefully I can add a little insight um, and background of my experience and how that has shed some light on um, how I approach policy from a research perspective. So again, I'm, I'm Stephanie Lee and I'm the director of a, a very small nonpartisan research agency, the Washington State Institute for Public Policy. And uh, I started working at the Institute in 2007 as a research associate um, and did a whole number of different projects and eventually became the director of the Institute in uh, 2018. My educational background is actually in experimental psychology, so I don't have um, a specific public policy background, um, but I was on track at one point to complete a PhD in experimental psychology when I started to question why I was on the academic track. Um, I took a break after I received my master's degree um, just to explore other career options. Um, I was concerned kind of that my my orientation in the academic space was really narrow and focused and I was really interested in how research might apply to people's lives. Um, so I wound up in the UK conducting research for a small community development charity in London. Um, their mission was to assess risk and protective factors um, among youth within a community and then use evidence-based approaches to actually reduce those risks and boost those protective factors. Um, so that got me really excited about how research can actually be 
um, focused on a particular community to address challenges and to inform practice and potentially improve outcomes for, for real people. Um, so I really dug into that work, um, spent four years there, and it was interesting because a board member of that charity started sending me reports from the Washington State Institute for Public Policy. Um, it just so happens that I grew up in Washington State. So uh, reading those reports really opened my eyes to how research cannot just inform a specific practice on the ground, but can also be used to inform um, what the state can do or what a country can do to potentially improve outcomes for, for real people, real constituents. Um, I'm really an optimist by nature, so I, I do believe in the power of good government to improve conditions for people, and I do believe in the power of the scientific method to test ideas. Um, so I found it really inspiring that my home state had a dedicated research group um, that was assigned with helping lawmakers understand evidence for and against different policy options. So needless, needless to say, I never went back to the academic track. Um, I was so excited about the possibility of, of using my research skills to potentially impact the lives of people. Um, I, I wound up working at a um, county office of education in California for a little while, but I, I really felt that the work wasn't really helping to inform practice in a way that could um, improve student outcomes. Um, so I took a chance and applied to the Washington State Institute for Public Policy and was really fortunate um, to become a research associate back in 2007. That's, that's amazing. Can, can you give us just some examples from your experiences then of, of the ways that, uh, maybe th think of one of the, the different things you've worked on, um, of the connection between the policy and its impact on practice? Um, sure, I can think of, gosh, that's a really broad question. <laughs> there are so many. No, that's great. Um, I can think of a, a few examples. There's one really large example that that comes up often when I when I talk about these things, and it is um, an example from the mid 2000s from Washington State, actually, where our state legislature actually funded a, a sort of a portfolio of different evidence based options that had the long term impact of reducing the crime rate. So. Our group, and I have to say I was not a part of the Institute at the time this report was published, so I cannot take credit, um, but our group actually uh, evaluated the research literature and, and not only looked at programs that were intended to be rehabilitative for folks who were already in the correctional system, but also they looked at early childhood programs um, like mm -hmm. home visiting and early education that could have really long-term impacts on mm -hmm. um, the, the crime rate and the incarceration rate. And so that evidence together um, led the legislature to actually invest pretty significantly in a, a whole broad array of crime reduction strategies. And over time, um, we have actually seen the, the incarceration, the number of people incarcerated in Washington on a daily, uh, on a daily basis um, has reduced relative to what we would have expected before those um, policies were implemented. So it's sort of an array of different options that were all adopted at the same time and ramped up in the state um, over a few years. That's great. That's great. Thank you. Thank you for that. So you're currently the director of the Washington State Institute for Public Policy. And, and as you said earlier, it's a nonpartisan organization 
created by the legislature to carry out practical research on issues of importance to Washington. So I understand that your primarily respo primary responsibility is to identify and evaluate research evidence programs and policies that impact the residents of Washington. Um, can you share with us what drew you to focus on that and what are some of the needs or gaps that you see? Absolutely. Um, well, the, one of the interesting characteristics of the Institute is that we don't drive our own research agenda. The legislature gives it to us. <laughs> so essentially they say, here are the things we want you to study over the next year, six years, 10 years, whatever. Um, and so the types of research evidence that the legislature often asks us for um, really tend to be in the areas of human services, education, um, and to a lesser degree, healthcare. So those three areas are really major drivers of the state budget. So you can kind of, um, it's, it's not surprising um, that that's really where we get um, asked to focus. And in that area of human services, we're often looking at corrections, juvenile justice, child welfare, behavioral health, um, those kinds of things. So, so we do have a pretty broad um, research portfolio. Um, and oftentimes our task is to review the existing research literature to help inform policymakers about approaches that they might be able to take that could potentially lead to improved outcomes for residents of Washington State. Um, and then other times we're tasked with evaluating something that's already happening to see, is this particular program, policy, strategy having the impact that it was anticipated to have. Um, so we, in those buckets of work, there are quite a few needs and gaps that I, I could see. And I kind of see, I think, three major buckets of gaps. Um, so first of all, not all policy areas have a lot of rigorous evidence on specific things that you can do to create change. Um, a lot of the things that we do are just based on what we've always done. Um, and so sometimes it's, it's challenging to identify a body of rigorous evidence that we can really bring to bear on policy decisions. Um, second, data availability can present a lot of challenges to conducting rigorous research. So um, oftentimes we are asked to evaluate a program in a particular area and legislators are, are interested in the impacts that a program might have across a variety of different outcomes. And so it's up to us to go ask the state agencies who hold data to hand that over to us and allow us to analyze it. And there are so many challenges to um, with different federal and state regulations about how you can use the data and for what purposes, even for research purposes. Um, and there are a lot of challenges just to making sure data systems are secure and people's privacy is kept um, really confidential. So there that that I think is is some is a conversation that has been growing and growing, um, and I think will continue to be something that that researchers are concerned about um, and see as a, a need is, is better connection of data, better availability for researchers, and better protections um, on the user end. And then finally, um, another need that I see is is when I think about the cycle of bringing evidence into policymaking. Um, I think oftentimes folks think about the, there's sort of three major steps of, of that evidence and policy cycle. So first of all, it starts with research. You've got to have rigorous research indicating there's a good reason to believe um, that something you can do, a particular program, strategy, or policy 
will produce better outcomes than what you're currently doing. Mm -hmm. So you've got to have a good research-based reason. And then second, there has to be the political will to fund and implement that evidence-based policy or strategy or program. Um, and then finally, there really should be some kind of mechanism to monitor the policy and to ideally evaluate it in a rigorous way that can inform policymakers whether or not the intended effect is actually being achieved. Um, and if not, what are the conditions that might be impairing the effect of the program? Mm -hmm. um, so that third step I see is oftentimes a gap. I think folks get really excited about doing something new and it, it's expensive to mm -hmm. track and monitor and implement. Um, the different kinds of programs and, and policies that we might have in place. Um, so I think that that third step often gets gets overlooked um, mm -hmm. in the policy process. Absolutely. Um, you know, you I, I really I, I like your discussion and your breakdown of the cycle of of the evidence and the policy. And, and you mentioned the political will to fund and implement, um, you know, the research or, or the, the policies. Uh, or programs, so it, it brought to question your your research agenda of what you're focused on is is given to you by by the legislature of Washington. What kind of impact does does politics have in that? Now I recognize you are nonpartisan, but yes. in terms of the shifts that we're seeing ideologically at state mm -hmm. levels and national levels, at a state level, are you seeing a lot of shift, and is that with the changes in in which uh, who's governing um, the majority of the legislature is that having a significant impact on the research agenda? Right, that's a great question. Um, and at this point in time, we have um, a single party in control of the governor's office and in both chambers of the legislature, mm -hmm. but it certainly has not always been that way. And in very recent history, um, we had a divided legislature. Um, so different parties in control of the two chambers. And I think one advantage um, of our, the way we're set up as a nonpartisan, explicitly nonpartisan mm -hmm. agency is that we serve whoever's in charge. We answer whatever questions they have. And I, I've seen a lot of bipartisan collaboration in Washington state. So it's not always the case that um, politics are so divided that folks don't agree on things. There, there are often sponsors of both parties on a lot of the bills that we get through um, that contain assignments for us. Mm -hmm. So um, I would say the, the, the political parties in Washington state tend to, um, tend to be somewhat more collaborative than we see at the federal level, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and I think our history of working really successfully with administrations and legislatures of both parties, um, it really has grounded our credibility as a nonpartisan agency. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of the types of work that we do are really appealing to folks from both sides of the aisle. Um, so I feel like we have just given our history, we have been pretty successful in um, in maintaining that nonpartisan status and working very well with members of both parties. Okay, great, great. And, you know, I think the importance of collaboration with, you know, the legislature obviously is a huge deal. But you also mentioned um, when you were talking about the challenges uh, of, of, of policy work, uh, I'm sorry, of, um, 
the research is the data collection component. And you're really reliant on that data coming from agencies and organizations that, that you may be evaluating or, or looking at policy implications. So can you share with us what are some of the, um, I guess, some of the strengths and challenges that you see around collaboration and how you all have been able to, to build collaborations as an institute with other organizations? Right. Um, well, so most of the, all of the agencies who hold data in our state are um, sort of executive branch agencies. So they're, mm -hmm. they're part of the governor's office and we are legislative. Um, and I think one of the things that really works in our favor is that our assignments come from law. So they are written into bills, either uh, policy bills or the budget bill, and passed into law, signed by the governor. Um, and we can we have this piece of paper that says, you know, by law, we need to submit this report by next December. Um, and agencies are really willing to um, to help us out to the extent that they can. There are sometimes federal regulations that come in where they're not able to help us to the extent that we would like them to be able to. Um, there are sometimes capacity restrictions where we happen to get a very complicated assignment and um, the agency we need data from is overwhelmed with requests mm -hmm. uh, that happens pretty frequently um, and we do our best just to create um, good relationships with people and it, it's one of those situations where our I think we have a what 37 year history <laughs> in this state mm -hmm. and um, just the fact that we've been around so long we are a trusted source of information um, both for the legislature and the governor um, that um, agencies know that it's it's really in their best interest and in the state's interest for them to help us to the extent that they can. So um, we really just try to maintain positive relationships with the folks at different agencies and um, uh, that we have found them all very accommodating, um, you know, within the, with, to the extent that they can be. <laughs> right, right, right. Like you said, they have restrictions potentially at a federal level that they have to be mindful of. Absolutely. Um, so switching gears just a little bit, um, the current module that students are in, they're reading about cost-benefit analysis, and one of the articles assigned is an article that, that you wrote uh, using cost-benefit analysis to understand the value of social interventions. Can you share with us the importance and the need you see in using cost-benefit analysis to evaluate social interventions? Mm -hmm. Sorry. Absolutely. So I think one of the things that I find so useful about uh, benefit cost analysis is its ability to provide additional information beyond what works. I think the idea of evidence-based policymaking has get, gained a lot of traction across the country and across the world. Um, people want to do what works. They want to do, they don't want to reinvent the wheel. They want to know what's going to give them better outcomes. And we do have a lot of information about what's likely to produce better outcomes. Um, um, but what that doesn't tell you is, well, what's the relative cost of doing this thing? Um, can you give someone a relatively low level um, sort of talk therapy intervention or do you really need to give them like an intensive, um, you know, inpatient rehabilitation model? And there are, there are a lot of different 
models of programs that have different costs associated and different levels of effectiveness. So mm -hmm. in some cases, that intensive residential program might really be worth it. It might have mm -hmm. such a strong impact on someone's life that you could you could imagine that it's it's a great thing to do. Whereas in other situations, a lower cost um, intervention could could produce an effect that's either you know just as large or at least justifies the cost of the program. Um, so I think that extra information is really useful when thinking through, particularly when there are multiple policy options on the table. Mm -hmm. If there are multiple ways to get the results that you think you want, mm -hmm. um, then oftentimes it's a really good way to make a choice between two alternatives. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the other benefits of it um, comes back to a question you asked about politics. So um, we have found that benefit cost analysis can really bring people together on bo from both sides of the aisle. Um, if you can find solutions that not only improve outcomes, but also either save money up front or, or return a large return on your investment in the long run, um, we find that members of both parties really tend to support those kinds of approaches. Mm -hmm. um, so that that's another just a, sort of a communication tool. It can be really useful. Um, I will say it's it's not the best approach for everything. Um, there are times where, you know, maybe the economic impact is is not the most important decision or not the most important component of a decision, mm -hmm. um, and it provides a limited perspective. You know, if we're if we're talking about um, sort of the overall economic impact. Um, legislators have a lot of different voices that they're listening to uh, mm -hmm. when they're trying to make decisions and there could be very valid reasons for not thinking about benefit cost analysis or, or not prioritizing that as um, a decision-making tool but in certain cases I think it can be a great help um, mm -hmm. and it can really help take some of the emotion out of decision-making as well and mm -hmm. when you're really focusing on well here's the magnitude of the outcome and here's the benefit that that's we think that's going to lead to mm -hmm. um, that can really help folks kind of back up and take a broader perspective and you know as you're talking about the you know the magnitude of the impact economically you know depending on and what's being evaluated uh, you can see um, so I, I think about just anecdotally from from different programs I've been involved with from an addictions lens a, a short-term impact of somebody getting perhaps detox services and and short-term intensive services you might see a quick short-term benefit to that but longitudinally if you're looking further out you see more relapse factors and what we have found again anecdotally is that if we can have more supports through the life of that person's early recovery process the impact of the sobriety in the ability to maintain recovery is longer um, but it's a, a longer term impact yeah. that you're going to see and so you know how it are is it a combination of, of, of research being done that looks at short-term and long-term impact or are there longitudinal studies regarding these type of um, economic impacts is that something if you could speak to that yes wonderful wonderful question it's something we think about all the time um, first of all how long does the effect last mm -hmm. um, so as you mentioned with certain types of um, substance use disorder interventions, sometimes you don't know 
what happens to folks after an immediate intensive intervention. Sort of the, the research isn't able to follow them up. You don't know about the longitudinal impact. And in a lot of those kinds of situations, we, um, we do one of two things. We will either say, well, we can't forecast this, this impact being long-term, or we will take the body of evidence in a particular area to say, with these kinds of interventions, um, what, what do they say as a whole about the length of an effect of mm -hmm. a program? Um, and so we're able to kind of combine those bodies of evidence together to give us the best estimate of like how long we think that this, um, this effect is going to last. Mm -hmm. We found in a number of areas that effects tend to persist for a really long time. And in other areas, um, there might be a reduction. So by two years, the effectiveness of a program is essentially cut in half because people recover on their own or um, maybe you know the effectiveness is attenuated over time. So we try to include that information in all of our models. We also consider um, the long-term um, sort of life course of a person and sort of that, um, you know, you mentioned um, recovery um, from substance use. And we think about how the natural course of substance use disorders tends, people tend to recover. Um, on average, folks do recover over time. Not everyone, but, um, but some people do. And we try to include that information in our model because we're saying, well, what's the effect of treatment beyond that natural recovery? Um, and we model out how long we think that's, that's going to, to last. And then the impacts of that um, can sometimes have long consequences. I think um, in terms of not just the effectiveness of a program, I think of sort of the, the economic impact can also last over time. And the really clear um, example of this is in the criminal justice system where someone can do a crime at a one point in time, but that the impact on the court system on jail, supervision, and prison resources from one event can last years and years. And so we model that out into the future. We really try to incorporate like over the lifetime, what do we think this pattern of effects is going to show us? Um, so we do try to con consider not only the length of the impact of the program, but also sort of the length of the economic consequence as well. Thank you. That's that's really helpful. And so I'm imagining being a legislator, legislator, and you know they come from all various backgrounds. This is a lot of complex information. It's very, very dense. And so as a social worker, I'm with you. I, I got you. But if you don't have a background that lends itself, especially when we're talking about social interventions, um, it, it can be. I think difficult to follow. So how how do you make that consumable for legislatures, legislators? Sure. Um, I think there's a couple of different steps. So we really do try to keep the information as kind of basic and clear as possible. Um, and when we are walking through a particular example, we try to give the examples of. Um, so when we're doing an outcome evaluation, we try to say we're evaluating this one person who went through treatment against a different person who's almost the same as that person, except they're not getting treatment. And that's the effect that we're looking at. And that effect, we're trying to figure out how much that effect costs to produce for that individual person. And then what's that long-term impact for that one individual person, um, given that, you know, their likelihood to 
recidivate or graduate from high school or um, recover from a substance use disorder is potentially impacted by that intervention. So we're, we're looking at these little kind of the magnitude of the effect and stacking that up with the magnitude of the cost and the magnitude of the dollars associated with those outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, we're still working on our best way to present these these issues, but I think what we have seen is we try to present things pretty consistently. So we have these standardized tables of results when we do our benefit cost analyses. And you can drill in and you can see a whole bunch of detail, but what we try to present is just at the top level, here's what something costs, here's what the benefits are, and here's how those benefits break out to taxpayers versus others in society. We also do, a follow-up analysis about how risky an investment mm -hmm. might be. Um, we use Monte Carlo analysis. So we also have a statistic about how likely this program is to at least pay for itself, pay for itself mm -hmm. over the long term. Mm -hmm. um, and so legislators, once they've been in the legislature for a year or two, they start seeing these tables. Mm -hmm. And so they become familiar with, um, with how those can get interpreted. Um, but it is, you're absolutely right, it is really complex and we do try to keep it as simple but honest and truthful as we can. Yeah, yeah, great. Uh, and, you know, you're talking about some standardized ways of presenting information. And I know in the work that you conducted, it also includes um, Washington State Institute for Public Policy having a, a benefit cost software tool that you all use in Washington State. but have also, it's also used in other states um, and with other organizations and foundations. Can you talk with us about what led to the development of this tool and how it's impacted cost-benefit analysis of public policy? Absolutely. Um, the work around the cost-benefit analysis in general started in the late 1990s. Um, and it really originated with some questions about what works in juvenile justice. So mm -hmm. the legislature was interested in what you what we can do as a state to prevent kids from coming back into the juvenile justice system once they've already been in. Um, the associate director of the institute at that time, Steve Ose, came from a public utilities background and he was an economist by training. He was really used to um, including economic impact for his public utility analyses in terms of helping people make decisions. And so he, he had this thought that, well, maybe this is an approach we can also use for social interventions. And so with conversations between Steve and legislators at the time, um, they started getting really interested in the, in the possibility of showing that not only could you prevent kids from coming back into the system, but you could actually estimate how much that could save the state. Mm -hmm. um, so, so Steve and his team at the time started um, reviewing the research liter literature and started putting together a model of, you know, what it, what it means to keep a kid from coming back into the juvenile justice system. What's their likely trajectory without an intervention and what's their likely trajectory with the intervention and what's the cost of that? Mm -hmm. um, so what the, what the team found was that the benefits of keeping kids from returning to, to the juvenile justice system far outweighed the costs of actually um, providing some of these interventions. Um, and the rehabilitative programming was starting to show some evidence that you could actually have an impact in a meaningful way. Um, so that convinced legislators to start asking these questions in other areas. So adult mm -hmm. criminal justice, substance use disorder treatment, 
prevention, education. Um, so in 2009, we actually um, had a grant from the MacArthur Foundation to build a comprehensive model that would start weaving all of these different policy areas together into a comprehensive um, user-friendly model. Um, that wound up becoming the uh, Pew MacArthur Results First Initiative. So it was a, a partnership with the Pew Charitable Trusts, the MacArthur Foundation, um, um, who provided us funding in order to create and and um, develop this this cost benefit tool um, that we could use? Um, the Results First Initiative trained. I think they provided trainings to 25 states at one point, and I believe there are seven between seven and nine who are still really active using that benefit cost tool. Um, they have learned over the years that it's really challenging to keep this work up. It requires specialized training, a lot of uh, labor, um, and a lot of care. Um, also, uh, I think the, the initiative's um, training team really found that turnover of legislators in states is a real challenge to making this kind of work stick um, mm -hmm. when you have just constant churn of legislators over time. Um, and, and so it's, I think it's a, folks found that it is a challenge to kind of keep this work going on a state by state level. But, but again, seven, seven to nine states are still really using the techniques um, and the tool itself. And in some ways, I think that the tool has kind of become a standard for talking about benefit cost analysis across the country. Mm -hmm. So the kinds of issues that we've explored and the kinds of perspectives that we try to lay out for folks, um, even if they're not using the tool, seem to have become more common in conversations about economic impact analysis mm -hmm. across the country. Okay. That's, that's really interesting and, and really an accomplishment that it was used by so many and still that's a good number when you think about the intricacies of different state government that that many seven to nine still using that is is really amazing um, our students they've been reading about cost benefit analysis and policy explore exploring monetizing impact distributional effects and weight feasible manipulations uh, different topics of that nature some questions have arisen around measuring benefits that are not readily quantifiable and or how to quantify the disparate impacts from an intersectional lens. Can you talk to us how, how you navigate these complexities or articulate the cost-benefit impact of social interventions on different marginalized groups? Yeah, so this is, this is one of those questions where I wish I could give you a better answer. <laughs> um, so we, we definitely try to quantify benefits that are not readily quantifiable just by making um, our underlying assumptions about the effectiveness of a program on different outcomes. Even if we can't monetize a specific outcome, we at least try to publish the effect size for that outcome so that folks can at least get a sense of, you know, is this thing having a good impact or not, even if it's not something that we can put um, a dollar value to. Um, that said, there are a lot of things that we can't even really quantify. Um, our assignments have historically come from a what works on average kind of lens, given the state's interest in serving all of its constituents. Um, but we are hearing more and more questions about what works for whom. And those are questions that we are really just beginning to explore. Um, 
I think they're really important. And I think the other, the other important uh, consideration is context. So what works for whom and under what conditions? Mm -hmm. um, so these are questions that our researchers are constantly thinking of. Um, there's a ton of more work to be done, not only by us, but by the research community at large. So, um, so for example, the evaluation literature that we rely on to um, synthesize our analyses of what's evidence-based, mm -hmm. um, they those studies don't always present the re different results for different mm -hmm. subgroups of individuals, mm -hmm. um, especially when you look back to, you know, the 80s and 90s. Um, there's just not a lot of um, specific analyses for specific groups of folks. Um, the economic literature likely is, I mean, similarly, is also um, relatively sparse in commenting on specific economic impacts for specific populations. Um, and I, I do think that intersectionality is particularly challenging from a traditional research perspective, because as populations get smaller and sm smaller, um, the more intersections of identity that you're looking at, um, then from a statistical power perspective, mm -hmm. your numbers start getting really small. And so it's hard mm -hmm. to make those kinds of rigorous statements um, based on, you know, your, your standards of hypothesis testing. And um, the power can be really limiting in, in the conclusions that you're able to make. But I think we are definitely starting to think about um, other research methods and learning from different perspectives, allowing for more qualitative evidence gathering um, to serve interpretation purposes, just to get as much information as possible about um, who is conducting these different interventions, um, who's getting impacted, uh, what conditions are, are being met, are those similar to the conditions that we're seeing in Washington? Um, and those, those kinds of issues, I think there's just a lot more attention to be paid to this area of query. Um, and I know we're going to be looking to these questions more. That's great to hear. Uh, you know, I, uh, for my own research, as I was working on my doctorate, it was around assertive community treatment because my area of specialty is working with adults with a severe and persistent mental illness. And I wanted to know its efficacy in, in working with people of color. Um, and, and to what you said earlier, I couldn't find it. <laughs> I can find all kinds of data about the efficacy of assertive community treatment. And I knew anecdotally, if people were trained to be um, attentive to um, one's cultural needs and making that overt part of their practice, that I saw it effective. And I thought, I think this could be, but I could not find I could find, you know, pockets of information. You know, Mount Sinai had done some research that looked at particular um, ethnic groups, but outside of really the research they did, I couldn't find it. Um, and so I, the, the dearth in the literature is definitely there. Um, you know, and that's one of the things that I have really talked with our students about is your practice experience and your practice wisdom can help uh, highlight some of these gaps and help us to try to, um, you know, as a, a DSW, I'm not going to do the type of analysis and statistical analysis, that's not my training, but that qualitative component to be able to bring the why behind some of that data or help ask some of those questions behind what's missing is what I can bring to the table. Um, and so, you know, for me, it's exciting to hear that there's a recognition that there's this gap 
and that people are beginning to to ask those questions and and work towards how, well, how do we figure this out um, and add those qualitative components to what's being right. done. Right. So that's exciting. Well, and I do know that in our own work, um, when we are tasked with conducting our own outcome evaluations versus synthesizing the evidence from other folks' evaluations, we are doing the best we can to start um, looking at different subgroup analyses to the extent that we have the data. Um, sometimes we are asked to look into factors that we just don't have data on, but oftentimes we can look at issues of race, identity, gender, um, uh, location, rural versus urban location, mm -hmm. or, you know, county of origin, um, child welfare office, these kinds of things that at least tell you something about mm -hmm. where a person have com is coming from or what mm -hmm. kind of conditions they might be experiencing. And we do find, I mean, we recently did a study of functional family therapy in the juvenile justice system, and overall outcomes did not look good. Um, when you looked at the, the whole population, mm -hmm. um, there was no benefit to kids going through functional family therapy comp compared to the other types of interventions they might be getting in our juvenile justice system, which admittedly are very heavily evidence-based as well. Um, however, for girls, it seemed to be working. It seemed that there was, it looked like there was a reduction um, when you limited the analysis just to girls. Um, so there are important lessons that we can learn. Um, it just takes getting the data and using it in a way that can that can help inform some of those questions. Absolutely, absolutely. Are there any parting words that you would share with our DSW students regarding policy and cost-benefit analysis? Well, <laughs> this is always a challenging one. Um, I think uh, whenever we're doing research, I think it's, it's, it is important to gather as much data as we can about who's being served and under what conditions. Um, it's also really important to think about how effects are being measured. Um, what are the outcomes that folks are really interested in and making sure that when you're doing research, um, you're getting at the outcomes that you're interested in and not some kind of proxy that's down the road if possible. Mm -hmm. um, so really focusing in on those metrics that you really wanna see change and wherever you can actually getting access to those metrics themselves um, and not necessarily uh, you know, a self-reported proxy measure. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, I think the, the last thing I would love to leave students with is, you know, this is such an interesting area of exploration. Policymakers, um, you know, compared to 20 years ago, are much more likely to think about evidence um, when, they're, when they're thinking about what to do. Mm -hmm. um, and this, the, the research literature has ex exploded in some areas. There's just so much out there um, that, you know, we, have, we certainly haven't had the opportunity to synthesize yet. And uh, those questions that you asked about uh, marginalized groups and intersectionality are just becoming more and more important mm -hmm. um, to, really, to really figuring out what works for whom and, and what to do for different communities. So um, I would just hope that they take uh, encouragement from the, all the work that's out there and um, I, I will wish them all very well in this space in the future. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ms. Lee, for talking with me today. Um, I know this will be of great benefit to our students uh, being able to talk through some pragmatics of, of this type of work. I appreciate your time and your expertise and your commitment to not only Washington State, but communities at large. Well, thanks so much. I really enjoyed it.
This podcast is brought to you by the University of Kentucky College of Social Work. Fully online or face-to-face, leading social work education for over 80 years. Find out more about the UK College of Social Work online at socialwork.uky.edu.